Let's turn to Second Kings right now. Chapter 3 is where we're going to be at. The title is taken from the text today. Not a lot of creativity here, except I think it is a great one. Verse 15 of chapter 3. Now bring me a musician. So I already heard cymbals crash out there. Good job. That's a musical instrument. There's a lot that's going on in Second Kings right now. There has been a lot that we've learned preceding it. In First Kings, one of the things that is important to remind you is that sometimes there are zoom-ins that the Lord gives to us in Scripture in which what we hadn't previously been able to focus on tightly, the Lord brings to an account, much like binoculars would to you. There are also perhaps even what you would call prequels and sequels that are built into the revelation of characters and principles and storylines here. In this case, that would probably be one of those. For a king that several chapters back, actually at the close of First Kings, was pronounced as resting with his fathers, he seems to be alive and doing quite well. And that's Jehoshaphat. But it's important to note that these very often dovetail. And so we're getting simply an insight in the transition that's taken place in the uplifting of Elijah into heaven and the mantle being given to Elisha. And that's really what we're seeing right now. There was approximately about four years of difference between the end of Ahab's dynasty as a wicked king in the northern kingdoms and Jehoshaphat, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem proper, that's where he was ruling from. And so we're picking up a little bit more of actually what he did do beyond what we saw in the previous close of First Kings. It's important to see what he has done. The title actually is very important to see his heart in what you and I as well ought to be thinking about with frequency. In times that are sad and when we feel like flicking on the radio or however you turn yours on and the blues are what you feel like listening to. I'm a musician so I understand the different genres but usually when we talk about the blues it's a sad song. It's something that has reflective poetry that thinks of the worst that has happened or the worst that will happen. And how am I going to deal with it? I'm going to drown it or I'm going to drown myself or I'm going to take my dog in the back of my pickup truck and see if he can stay in there as fast as I'm driving. And so this title for today will come up in the teaching. And I think it's important because Elisha is going to be asked what he thinks concerning the merger of three kings to go into battle. In essence, you and I are in a battle continually. One degree or another, 
we're participants and the victory we know we desire to have as the Lord's. But can we become confused? Is it possible that we move in vulnerability and actually are on our way to defeat? The answer would be yes. We see that in the church all the time. Good soldiers who made errors on the battlefield. And so one of the things that we're going to see here is Elisha exercising prudence that even as a prophet, he chooses to seek God through the sound of divine music. You just heard a set of divine music and we'll close this service out with a divine worship song. It's a means by which we are extraordinarily connecting with God. You could have punched in, you know, your iPhone and put on your earbuds and some of you may have ear bones, whatever the technology is. And it could have been something different than what you heard, but no better than what you heard, just different. And not necessarily the stuff at all that's going to cause there to be clarity in your thinking and the assurance God is speaking to me. You've heard those special songs. This little console back here plays music 24-7. It's only briefly off at times such as now. And there are many times, probably I can't count them, that I come through the door and I hear a special song. I think the iPod that I use, it was like made in 1957. And um, you can fact check me. And call me a liar. I'll accept that. About 1,057 songs on it. And they're kind of all the old school stuff with some really, in my opinion, great contemporary, my contemporary, 80s, 90s. But the Lord touches me when I come in with a song. Here we go. Let's take a look at where we're at right now. There's warfare on the horizon. There's warfare presently. If you catch a breakfast on Friday, we're very close to Rob teaching us about spiritual warfare and what we need to be equipped with. But in this one, this is not new to this nation. Israel was at war. And Israel was to take a position in which they would battle for the Lord and the battle belonged to the Lord. They were to battle the evils of their culture and society. Oh, it wasn't necessarily their personal culture. It's that they had been cultured by pagan communities and it infiltrated their hearts and they had a leadership that defied God and created sectors of abomination in which a community of spiritual people we're always being misled and seduced and falling down before pagan imagery. And so in this warfare, it is in fact against an opposing nation. Moab is that nation. They were not a good people, but what we know with certainty and Looking back, the Lord has his redemptive eye on any nation that has any person within that nation that desires to look up to him. 
That's a story that we've been familiar with. So here we are right now. These kings are going to cloister together. They're forming an alliance. You're seeing that today in modern headlines. China and Russia cloistering together with Iran. What is up with that, heaven? Heaven's up with that. A couple weeks ago, we talked about heaven's up. Elijah being lifted up into heaven. Heaven's up. There's stuff that both songs, hymns, spiritual songs, we'll look at that in Ephesians 2, are to be reminding us that heaven's up. So here we have a play. Here we have the drama unfolding. It's fairly dramatic. It says now, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became a king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. He has a short reign. His father had a much longer reign, unfortunately. Jehoram, though, who we see here is not the first, because our chapter 1 in 2 Kings opened up with rebellion also of Moab, and it indicated that when Ahab had died, he had another son in his place, Ahaziah. He fell, as you recall, through a lattice, was wounded, and would die as a result of that. You remember he appealed to, in this case, the previous great prophet Elijah. Could he be touched and healed? The answer was no. So this is his brother, who's now going to be, if you would, not only a nuisance, but one who as well is striving to do right, but he can't. Elisha is going to be answering him shortly. This is what we know about him in verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father. And mother, father and mother, Ahab and Jezebel. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, verse 3, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was into calf worship, worshiping creation. What could be created by man's hands and what could take precedence over the creator of all that God had made? We're having that crisis now. It's considered actually the new religion. Worshipping the earth, worshipping environmental causes, worshipping the protection of the globe that we might not perish as is the way of man. So we're designing things that can move around the design of God, elevate the things of nature, the organics. We want to go back to the garden. The problem is there's no going back to the garden. There's only a choice to go up to heaven or to be evicted from that opportunity. And so when we see what this king has done, getting rid of some stuff that his parents certainly were guilty of, but not everything, 
that's our problems in today's national and global community. We have not fully dedicated ourselves to God. We permit idolatry to the convenience of some or to the convictions of others, and it defiles. This is that man. He's being charged with it in Scripture. He persisted. That means he didn't stop. Could have. And now it tells us one of the players. It says, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So he's a king of Moab. Not exactly something that you would be able to brag about, but it's what he has. And it appears that as he was overseeing Moab, he was also involved in the industry. Animal husbandry, selling to the local market. But he says to himself, I don't want to pay Israel's taxes anymore. I went out from under this burden, so I'm going to go to war. And that's usually what happens is somebody wants to be out from under the threat or burden of some other nation. They want what that other nation has. They want to swap positions. So we're seeing positionings of other nations that want to have a standing globally and to have with that power immutably. The problem with that is that it leads to warfare. We're in it. And the problem with warfare is ultimately death and destruction. We've seen that from Russia attacking. Terrible consequences. Looks like World War II. They didn't have that kind of armament. But nevertheless, this is leading up to something that God is going to do, a reversal on it. It's important to note this. Here's what happens as this is now being articulated as rebellion. There's going to be a fence. It happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram went out of Samaria. That was the capital city for the northern kingdom. And so he went out and he says in so doing, he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Here's his answer. He said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And does that sound familiar? It should, because he said this to Ahab. There's only about four years of difference between the demise of one and soon to be the demise of the other. Ahab had no glorious demise. There's nothing that suggests he was saved from sin. Jehoshaphat will be remembered as a good king with, unfortunately, a sensitivity in which he seemingly couldn't turn down offers to help. God saw his heart 
and that's pronounced later on in Second Chronicles, which records almost the same theme. But this is what he pledges. And you'll remember the last time he pledged it was when Ahab said, hey, there's land next door to me and I want it. Can you help me get it? And the word was, as, am, excuse me, I am as you are, my people are as your people and my horses your horses. And you'll remember that in that battle sequence, he cried out, no, Lord, basically, what have I done? He was saved. He says it again. What's going to happen? Okay, remember the last one is that Ahab wanted land that technically, historically was Israel's, but he wanted it for himself. He didn't want it for God, for the nation. He wanted it for himself. This is different. There's rebellion, if you would, in the kingdom. And it's from a people who were pagans, heathens. Israel hasn't done much better, but as a nation, they have the favor of God upon them. And so God's going to respond differently. Where God said he didn't want that nation attacked prior to simply to satisfy Ahab's covetousness, he's going to authorize an attack against Moab from these three kings. God authorizes attacks to protect his own. You'll see that Israel will be authorized to attack. You'll see that we have been authorized to attack too but we're not very tactful. We're a little bit at times in the world seen like Jehoshaphat. Okay, my horses is your horses. My men is your men. Sure, we'll help out as we can. And so as this continues, he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by way of the wilderness of Edom, a battle strategy being presented. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah, that's Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom, that's the other guy, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. They're moving into a predicament. They're ready to do battle, but they can see that the provisions, the basic provisions are scarce. It would indicate a problem in going any further than the belly could march. And so the king of Israel, I want to make sure, the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So this is Ahab's son, and his deduction is, well, now that what it is what we see, then God has orchestrated there to be both a drought and no food. And he's going to give us into the hand of Moab. So very often that's how you separate those of faith from those who falter in fear. Remember, he's not a godly king. Jehoshaphat is. Jehoshaphat sees the battle scene far different than Ahab's son. Who is right? Well, of course, the one who's following God, a heart that has the desire to please God, even though he at times misses on saying no to those who are mischievous. 
we can do that too. It continues, the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So he's thinking defeat is what's happening. God's sovereignly moving against us. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? It's a rhetorical question. He would have known that Elijah passed into heaven. He would have known that Elisha was on the scene. It's a rhetorical question to provoke thinking that's deeper than the problem seemingly that's before them. Has God questioned what you're doing in a manner that's simply asking you, do you want to talk things over with me before you make a decision, before you give up? Do you want to talk things over with me? So Jehoshaphat is actually plumbing, if you would, the heart of his men, those whom he's in alliance with, saying, anybody here? Do you know of anybody? That's a good thing to do for those who have questions that are of fear and of fate that are posed to you, and you need to check their heart. Who are you talking to? Who are you trusting in? What is it that you're forging an alliance with that's contrary to God's desire that you're trusting in him? No prophet here. So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of the of Shaphat, who's here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's saying, that guy that served Elijah, pouring water on the hands of Elijah is a servant's duty and job. That's what they get to do. Not everything seemingly about being an understudy is glamorous and glorious. It's arduous, probably at times humiliating. The pouring of water on hands means that you're serving somebody who's doing a majority of the work. You're refreshing them, you're coming to their aid, but it nevertheless marks you as a servant, not an equal. Praise God that in what he has done on the cross, we have become brothers and sisters. We've become, if you would, an alliance of servants, serving the king, serving one another. But back then, this was a mark of excellence to be noted under someone as a great servant of theirs. And so here's what we have distinguished in his life. And so Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. That's what you need to tell people. The word of the Lord is in that place. They teach the word of God. The word of the Lord is in that person. They speak the oracles of God. They know how to edify comfort. They know how to exhort. They handle the word of God. They handle the people of God as servants of the Most High. That's where you go. You can try to achieve knowledge and wisdom from Fox News if you want to. But basically, you will be ultimately disappointed in trying to make that solve your problem. You can read the newspapers, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. It'll provide you with information, but it will not sustain you with divine insight 
and wisdom. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Notice Elisha's response. He says in verse 14, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand surely, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. Jehoshaphat is being rewarded in a confident conclusion to this king that's wicked. And he's saying, because of Jehoshaphat, I'm tolerating your presence. Are you someone that when people see you with others, because of who you are, another person can stand in a proximity that though they may not deserve it, they're in good standing because they're standing next to you and you're standing in the presence of the Lord. Do you realize the influence that can be and mean to somebody? They don't deserve to perhaps have audience, but because of the position that you hold, your reputation with God, they get to stand by you. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty humbling. It actually can be for you pretty humiliating too. Continues to move us through this situation. But now, verse 15, to the title. Bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Music's powerful. It's wonderful. I hope I get to sit in one of the bands in heaven. I hope the Lord equips me to play better than I play. That's all I ever wanted to do was play the guitar, play the piano, play the drums. But I never became a multi-instrumentalist like my kids have. The two guys up here, Spencer, Zachary, multi-instrumentalists. And I look at them going, how'd you do that? I know that the two younger ones were trained under the tutelage of a classical pianist, Christy. But I was happy to be a singer, songwriter, musician. That's all I wanted to do. The reason being is that the Lord touches our hearts through songs that are purposely given by God to his people to invigorate them to provoke them away from the blues and to consider the blue yonder, the place ultimately that he's fashioned for us and that he's preparing us for. And so this title, just like I thought, oh, that melts me. We all know what it's like to listen to some of our favorite cultural songs, right? But the cultural songs, let me ask you this. 
Does it draw you back to something cultural, something carnal, or does it transform you into something of the divine? I'll tell you where it does me. It's carnal. It's cultural. But man, it's got a beat. Rocks my world. Changes my attitude. But is it eternal? No, it's not eternal. When I come through those doors, if I heard the Beach Boys playing, I'd probably laugh. I'd probably be able to sing along. But it would do nothing, nothing concerning my spiritual day that would edify me. I'd just be able to, I know that song. I know that song. I know, I know all of those songs. But you're not going to hear me sing, well, I might if I change the lyrics, Beach Boy songs in church, certainly not today. It's spiritual songs. Let me take you to an area of scripture, Ephesians 5, verse 19. I'm going to scooch over there. Because what Elisha is saying is, I'm going to connect with God by calling upon a godly minstrel, not a cultural idol. I'm going to call upon God. I'm going to have clarity of what I'm to do by calling upon a minstrel that sings and plays the songs of God. I was so tempted, if I can use that word, <laughs> I was provoked in a good way to call one of the boys up here to do a special. But I thought, oh, if I do, I could give them a heart attack. Oh, they have just, they both have special songs that I love, and I was going to do that. I thought, I'm going to spare them this time. But because of the need to have spiritual songs in our hearts, notice what Ephesians 5.19 says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because prior to this, the emphasis of 15.2.19 is to walk in wisdom. This is what Elisha wants. He wants to walk in wisdom. He wants to direct these people in accuracy. They're coming to me for an answer. What do I do for that answer? Bring me a musician. Bring a musician so I can connect with the Lord on what it is there to do. And therefore, I would say to us today, change channels. I'm not condemning the music unless your music is worthy to be condemned, but the Lord will convict you of that. So therefore, I'm not condemning you. We have wonderful songs that have been given to us to enjoy. And they're not necessarily overtly all about God, but I will tell you, anything that is not cultural blasphemous wicked has been woven into lyric and melody something that causes us to think about God I do believe that to be true and I think there are many who in the years that our life reflects extraordinary presentations of song many of them were that close to changing the lyrics that much to where God could be seen in all of it but they missed by what? One opportunity to come to church. 
one opportunity that they could have read their Bible, one opportunity that they could have hit their knees and surrendered their life. The Rolling Stones are eventually going to have a stone rolled over them. I cannot say that they're saved. There's nothing that has demonstrated that to me. But they could be saved, while those who remain. And that shows you grace, because if there's anybody that's outlived what would be what they've put their bodies through, it's the Rolling Stones. There's not too many years left for them to receive the counsel of the Lord. Bring me a musician. And he said afterwards, when the hand of the Lord came upon him through godly music, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches, for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, Yet that valley shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. Remember, on the battlefield, in pursuit of the enemy, and they realize there's no water, no food. They go to Elisha. He sees what the Lord's going to do for them. Notice that. He sees what the Lord is going to do for them. They must exercise industry to prepare for what God will do. That's the lesson. There's industry expected from us in what God is going to do on behalf of him, his favor towards our victory. So I don't know what ditch you have to dig, but hopefully you won't drive into one. Hopefully you'll be trenching for the downpour. It's figurative language. It is spiritual, but it's saying God does use us industrially in what we need from him spiritually and miraculously. It just works that way. And I don't fully understand it, but I know that one of the reasons I do what I do week to week and throughout the years because I truly believe that God is at work and he is making provision of living water. He is in what would be the barren times of people's lives sustaining them and desiring to say, you have victory in this battle. There's an enemy out there, but as long as you're on my side and you're doing the things that honor me as one who loves and serves me, I'm going to see you through this. And that's what they do. They trench. They dig. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into the hand, into your hand. Maybe that's a word for you. This is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. Oh, the Lord couldn't do that. It's too complicated. It's just my life is messed up. Well, the scriptures here say that a word was given to a man who said, bring me the musician. He hears the word. He says, dig trenches. That's what I'm saying. Dig with expectancy that God's going to fill it. And you don't know how he's going to fill it, but he's going to fill it. He's going to take care of you in it. And it's a simple matter for God, so just leave it in his hands. And it says, you shall attack every fortified city, every choice city, and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. This is what they are to do with the strength of provision that God has given to them. 
They are to destroy the markers of sin. They are to eradicate an enemy that has come against God. They are to no longer give any proximity of that nation to intrude and violate any longer Israel. That's essentially what it's saying, which is God's charge to us too. We battle that, don't we? Yielding to culture, yielding to, well, we can get along, can't we? Not really. I can have a conversation with you. I can be a nice guy with you. But until you change to understand God as I understand him, then chances are you're going to convince me to leave my God for your gods. I'm not doing that. There has to be an eradication. God doesn't operate a two-state system, which, of course, as you know, is what we're proposing for Israel and have been for the Middle East. It's not going to happen. Never works. That's compromise. The bottom line is, is this concludes with victory. Jehoshaphat has joined these two kings. And the outcome is given not because the two kings are worthy of it. It's because God's intention was to allow Israel proper, Judah, the ones who were overseeing the historic landmark of David to prevail. On Judah's side, they were doing good. On the northern kingdom side, every single king was rotten, core, bad. There's always someone that God sees in the worst of where you're at, and the chances are that he sees you and the worst of where you're at among the people that you say, I can't do this anymore. The Lord would say, you're right, but I can through you. Dig the trench. Be ready for the water. The harvest is going to happen. Don't give up. That's a great word. Don't give up. Do you ever feel like quitting? I do. Thanks. Somebody agreed with me. You get weary. So you say, call the musicians. This next Thursday coming up, not this one, but the one after it, we'll be calling the musicians up to have a night of worship. We're going to conclude our service by calling the musicians up to punctuate the closeout of our service. You can read the rest of the story. It ends on a sad note. on the opposing side, because they didn't know God, they decided to try a living sacrifice and to take out the life of a son of the Moabite king. He thought that would work. God took out his son for us, and it did work. This was just a tragedy the murder of a son to sacrifice to cultural idolatry. Sons and daughters are being killed by cultural idolatry. We don't have to do that, and we don't have to accept that as an alternative. 
because God the Father gave his son, and the son willingly laid down his life for us. In return, he gives us his spirit, the spirit of God within us, not simply coming upon us because of a song, but the bonus is living within us when we do play the song. It's a beautiful empowerment of both clarity, of wisdom, of certainty. There's a word in the song that God will give you. 